everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is Hashtag No Limits. I am your host, Shelly Kino. Hashtag No Limits is a program that was developed in order to hopefully change the world's perspective of people with different unique abilities. Um, I have so many times in my career seen people who have had limits placed upon them by society, but who have busted through those limits. And in my own life, I unintentionally had limits on people who learned differently than I did. And it took me way too long for my perspective to change. And so I started this show a couple of, I guess, during the pandemic. So about a year and a half ago um, to try to help other people have their perspective changed in a faster way than what my perspective was changed. And so this show is just talking to people who've had those limits placed upon them, who have busted through those limits, or maybe a support person of someone who's busting those limits. And so today I have Sandy with me and Sandy is a mom. She's an advocate. She has done the master IEP coach mentorship, just like I did. Um, and she's just an amazing person. And I'm so excited <laughs> to have her on today and to have her just talk about what her life is like and and what has um what perspective she can bring to the table sandy thank you for joining me how are you today thank you i'm great thank you so much for having me on shelly i really appreciate it and i'm looking forward to just chatting with you for a while yeah so um sandy and i haven't officially met we were just talking before we went live that we actually get to meet in person um in a couple of months we have our master iep coach conference and so um, we're both very thrilled about that but as i said sandy and i have both taken this mentorship course and we took it at different times so um she's but even before she did that she was just also telling me that she um was already an advocate prior to that so kind of um tell us how your whole life has gotten from point A to point B. From point A to point B. I was born a child in a small <laughs> town. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You go right ahead. You, you tell the whole thing. Right ahead. <laughs> so um, my world and my relationship with the world of special education began through my son, William. And Will, who is now 22, almost going to be 23 in a couple weeks. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, time flies. I know. Um, yeah. So Will's autistic. And... I recognized that there was something just kind of off. Something was just not quite right when I would see him playing with his peers and like the play group and he would do the parallel play. He wouldn't want to really interact with them too much. And he would line up all his little toys in a straight line and he would play with things in an inappropriate manner that just something was just not quite right. But he's a really smart kid. He was completely verbal. Um, met all the other milestones. And by the age of three, his obsession was always animals. And by the age of three, he could tell you the difference between monkeys and apes and the fact that monkeys had prehensile tails and what a prehensile tail was. I had to go look it up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, and you would quiz me on that right now. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. Exactly. <laughs> well, it means that it's like a finger. Okay. <laughs> so... All right. And I learned that from my three-year-old son at the time. And it was because <laughs> he was taking in all this information from videos that he would watch and, and just parroting things. Mm -hmm. So we embarked on, you know, the, the course of having him evaluated and trying to figure out what exactly was going on with him. And by the time, and it took us a couple of years to get the right diagnoses. Um, the first diagnoses came from a pediatric neurologist that said, oh, he's just ADHD. Here's your prescription. I was like, okay, oh. no. 
This is not yeah. where we're going. My child can attend to a task and sit and pay attention to something when it's something he's interested in, mm-hmm. you know, for half an hour to an hour at a time. So I knew that it wasn't a hyperactivity issue. I knew that there was something else behind it. And so we kept persisting with just different um, medical professionals until ultimately we found the the pediatric um, psychologist that said, you know, he's got some telltale signs. Read this pamphlet. Tell me what you think while I'm in here evaluating him. And it was at that time called Asperger's. So, you know, I guess Mm -hmm. by today's standards, it would be level one autism. Um, So just very high functioning, but he was like the little professor. And just saw the world very black and white terms and didn't understand the nuances of um, language sometimes. And, and, you know, when somebody was making jokes about language like uh, that involved certain statements like, oh, you know, carrots, they're really good for your eyes. And he would say, yeah, but I put them in my mouth, you know, so like Mm -hmm. those things. So once we had that official diagnosis and we saw how it started impacting him in school, then we started asking for help from the school team. And that began the entire fun IEP process of let's sign consent, let's do evaluations, let's look at this. And at the meeting to determine his eligibility, once we had done all of those processes and and things for the last like three, four months, we sat down with the team to determine his eligibility. And... (laughs) the district staffing specialist that was present um, because of my involvement with the school and because I was always around and things, they, we had developed kind of a rapport. So I guess she felt comfortable to just kind of joke with me. And when we looked at the area of eligibility for autism, she said, Oh, he's just not messed up enough for that. Oh dear. And that was like a gut punch, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and I was like, what, excuse, like, what? Did you just Uh, say what I think you just said? And, you know, my husband and I joke about this, that I thank heavens that he was next to me because I would have flown across the table. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, um, and ultimately what she meant to say, but failed spectacularly to do so, is that there are certain criteria that need to be met for all the different areas of eligibility and will happen to not meet the criteria the way that it was outlined at that time mm-hmm. for autism. Ultimately, we've had him found eligible under a different area of eligibility, which was other health impairment, which is just kind of like a blanket right. term that just encompasses all sorts of other things. And that was the first ice bath that I received of, okay, this is going to be a long road going through the, the ed- his educational career and me not understanding what the professionals are telling me. Cause I'm, you're sitting as a parent, you're sitting at that IEP table across from the educational team, across from the school psychologist, district members, speech therapists, people that have gone to school for umpteen years and do this on a regular basis you take them for their word and you believe that they do know all the ins and outs of, of the nuances of all these procedures and documents and things. Right. And I felt that I needed to get more information so that I could at least hold my ground so that I at least knew to what questions were the right questions to ask and what information was I missing. And, you know, over the next few years, I did a lot of 
workshops and a lot of research and, and just looked things up. And after a period of time, I ended up actually working back in the school system as a paraprofessional. And ultimately, I ended up as a school librarian. And at that school where I was working as a librarian, because I'm fully bilingual, they would bring me in to the IEP meetings to oh. help translate for the Spanish speaking families, because they knew that I had a background in this. They knew my personal experience. My son was a middle schooler at this point. So they know that I'd been down this road for years and I knew the nuances of the rules and, and, and laws and what have you. And so they would bring me in, in the, to the meeting to act as the interpreter for the parents. But then they realized that I was actually going a little bit above and beyond and explaining things to them and explaining <laughs> the procedures, not just doing the, the literal translations of right. what everybody was saying. Yeah. And, you know, someone mentioned to me, like, I think you missed your calling. I really do think you missed your calling. And that was just a light bulb moment for me. And so that's when I decided to become a professional advocate. And for anyone that is watching, um, you know, she did talk about how long of a process this was. And, and Sandy, you didn't go into all of those times that I'm sure you had to have of why is this so difficult? Why yes. doesn't the school just want to help my child? What mm -hmm. am I missing? What am I, you know, all of the, mm -hmm. so I, I'm, I'm just going to ask you, did you have times like that in that process? Did you ever want to give up? And if you did, what kept you going forward? Um, there were times to this day, sometimes, you know, being the parent of an autistic young adult is still not easy. And those are the times that you need to just dig in and say, okay, I need to put my personal feelings on the shelf. I need to just recognize that this isn't me versus this school team. This is not me. I, I just need to understand. I get it that you guys have procedures. Explain these procedures to me and the why for these procedures. Uh -huh. And there are so many rules and regulations that are outlined by the Department of Education that, that guide how these IEPs, how these documents are written that I just needed to understand more in depth what it was that I didn't know about it. And that's not to say that the parent that is sitting at home that is perhaps a paralegal in a law office or a dental assistant or somebody that works in accounting, that's not to say that everyone that has a child in the world of special education needs to go that deep into this, but mm -hmm. it's important to know that you do have your rights you do have specific steps that you're entitled to and that you can follow as a parent of a child with special education needs. But the most important thing is you have the right to bring whoever you want with you to the meetings to help yes. explain that. And that's where you and I step in. That's where right. people like ourselves can pitch in and help out and help either behind the scenes, coaching and explaining the, the process and the procedures to the parents, or sitting there with them shoulder to shoulder at that meeting and when necessary, pausing the meeting and saying, wait a second, did you understand that? Is there a question that you have? Because those were the things that I, that I missed out on and that mm -hmm. I wish I would have had when my son right. was six, seven, you know, 10, 15 years old. It, you know, you don't know what it is you don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's intimidating sitting across from the team there at the table. Absolutely. And 
I was a special education teacher as my background. And so I had been part of the education team at these meetings. The first time I went to a meeting with a parent after I stopped teaching, I was still nervous and like, oh my gosh, you know, they are talking so fast and I know what they're talking about. And I'm still having a hard time catching all the little things. And it, it isn't that it's done intentionally to, well, it's done intentionally, but it's not done intentionally to try to confuse or, you know, make it more difficult. There's a lot of summarizing Mm -hmm. because there is so much information and there's a lot of assuming that parents know things. And I don't even think oftentimes that that's intentional. It's just As educators, we have our speak. We know what we're thinking in our head, and we forget that the people that are sitting across from us or next to us aren't in our head and don't speak what we speak. Exactly. It's it's like you almost go on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the staff, and because I too worked in the school system, I get both sides of the table. I understand it. And I'm sympathetic to the school team's perspective as well, where sometimes they've got 15 meetings to get through in one week. And so if the parent isn't stopping them, and not that they're doing this on purpose to rush through, but if the parent isn't stopping them, they're just assuming, okay, you got it. You know what I'm talking about? Good. Then let's just go through beep, 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 beep. All right, we're done. No, it's, you need to take your time. And, you know, no one explaining to me that I had the right to just stop the meeting and say, wait a second go back because what is an FBA? What what are you talking about that you're going to do an FBA? What does that mean? Right. I'm, you're asking me to agree to something and to sign, but I want to understand A, what it is and B, how is that going to help my child? Exactly. So, you know, a functional behavior assessment where they're, they're then going to, con, you know, collect data to determine what the child's behaviors are and, and if there's you know, any kind of a pattern to it and what the function behind it is and how to possibly retrain the child out of those behaviors for, you know, to have them be more successful in school. No one explained that to me initially. Right. It was just here, sign on the dotted line. It was like, wait, 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 hold on a second. So that's, those are important lessons for, for parents to learn. And it's something that, you know, uh, what's the, the, our little, one of our, um, fellow master IP coaches, uh, the phrase uh, IPs are my jam. And you yeah. know, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. what I love having those conversations with parents and having those teachable moments and watching that light bulb go off like, oh, okay, I get it now. That's, right. That's and, it, and, and there's so much, and I don't know about you because you actually had more of an advocacy role before you took the mentorship class with Catherine. But for me, I thought I knew the special ed law, like I said, with all my years of teaching and all the meetings and all the IEPs that I'd written. And I was always interested in keeping up with the you know latest and greatest things that were happening in the law. And so when I took the mentorship, I, I was thinking, oh, I'll be, I don't really need that special ed stuff. I just need the stuff that she talks about business-wise. Right. I'm still constantly <laughs> like, Four, three, four years later, blown away when she says, oh, well, you know, have you thought about this? No. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And yeah, it, she, she's amazing. And, and she definitely, you know, she, she has a, a wonderful way of, of looking at things. She has a great perspective. 
And, um, and that's so, something yeah, that I, I mean, greatly appreciated because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. You're fine. Um, because I ended up working for a, a company that just hired out IEP advocates. I, I did, I, I became a, a senior IEP advocate. I'd done trainings and I'd done lots of courses and I did that for, you know, going on five years, almost six years. And you're always finding the new, you're always finding the changes, you're always finding that different perspective. And when I took Catherine's mentorship last summer um, was when I just decided to just kind of change my business model a little bit. And I went to work for myself and I started trying to also focus more on helping the bilingual community and helping the Spanish speaking families and things. And especially with the pandemic, we realized, oh my gosh, families need help now more than ever because this whole virtual learning that we're going to embark upon, like that was, that was something that nobody had ever experienced. But going back to the master IP coach mentorship, I had already taken courses and I was already actively working as an advocate and I still learn things and different perspectives and different ways of, of viewing things that I had never done before. And I just found it so refreshing. Mm -hmm. And one of the perspectives that I appreciate the most is trying to emphasize the collaboration with the school team. Yes, That was something that was so refreshing to me. And I've employed that in my day-to-day business model. And are there times that things can go sideways and you have to get a little more forceful with the team or you've got to dig in your heels because you recognize that something's not right? Absolutely. Right. But when you approach the table with a collaborative mindset and when you have good communication in advance of what your expectations are, not only with the family, but with the school team as well, like, listen, this is what we're going to be talking about. This is what we're requesting. And then just sit down and have a genuine, respectful give and take of, okay, this is what we're requesting. You disagree? Show me the data. Tell me why you disagree. Right. Not challenging them in you know a forceful way, but just respectfully, okay, explain your perspective to me. Explain your position. Why? Because this is our position. This right. is why the parent is asking for this for their child. Can you explain to me and to the parent why you don't feel they need that? Right. And that's just refreshing. Yeah, it absolutely. And I'll be honest, when I first came out of teaching, I was, I was bitter towards some of my gen ed colleagues because so much, yes, I went to school and I had the special education degree. So mine was a little bit more specialized, but I also had an elementary degree. And so I, without realizing I was doing it, a thought that, you know, I had to learn a lot of what I do with my students on the job because they can't teach you everything that you need to know in a college because, you know, I I feel like every, I don't even know, I I can't even put a time frame on it, but we're always seeming to add more disabilities of, you know, that children have, and there's more and more rare things and how it affects their learning. And, you know, so there's no way to know Like there's not just, okay, do this for this, you know, and do that. And this is going to work for here. And, um, but oftentimes I would get frustrated with my gen ed colleagues because I didn't feel like they were willing to do some of that. Mm -hmm. And so I did have more of a, I'm going to go work for the parents and I'm going to make these gen ed teachers do what they've not been doing all this time. And then I took that mentorship and I, and 
just the way she presented everything and the collaboration. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, she's right. And, and so that shifted my mindset regarding that. And I can now be empathetic towards the gen ed teachers in the sense of, yeah, you guys don't have a lot of training, but yet the law says you have to accept everybody into your classroom Mm -hmm. and you don't know how to help everybody. And so you probably are fearful that you're going to mess it up or that, you know, all the effort that you've put into it is still not going to be able to reach this child. And, you know, then you're going to feel like a failure and, you know, just, just a whole different mindset of, of, you know, and so now when I go into schools, um, how I approach gen ed teachers and special ed teachers, because some of the, some of the districts that I've represented families or, or partnered with families, the special ed teachers didn't know what they were doing either. And then I thought, well, yeah, you know, here's me. I had all these years of experience. I was interested in the law. I was always kept up to date with that kind of stuff. And yet I got into that mentorship and I learned, and it's not that she teaches like, oh, this is the law and, you know, it's the, it's the embrace the law, but also expand the box of thinking, you know, think outside the box of how can we make this work? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, there are things that are underlying things. Like you said, show me the data, right? You know, that is so huge. It and yeah. that was just sort of like, oh, I have to ask people for that. Like they should just know that, but right. they don't, they, you know, you... I agree. So and one of the things that I'll never forget, one of my first meetings, not long after the mentorship where I then, you know, collaborated with the team of, okay, let's ask, we're requesting something specific for the student. I asked for them to demonstrate the data that supported the fact that the student didn't need it. Well, no, they didn't have it. So, okay, we ended up collaborating on a SMART goal for this student. Then afterwards, I said to them, okay, so now how is this going to be implemented? Like, well, it's just, you know, we're going to scaffold the course and, and we're just going to, you know, implement. Okay. No, but how often is, are you going to work with them on this specific goal? How many times a week? And how are you going to let the parent know? So like having them think about having to break that down further mm-hmm. and sometimes it's met with resistance because it's just viewed as, you know, one more thing for them to do. It's right. one more thing for that poor teacher to have to collect data on and to have to, you know, keep track of and things. I get it. Like you said, you know, we've both been on, on the school side of things and teachers are under an inordinate amount of pressure and do have a lot on their plates. But when you are, when you have those parameters, I think if you look at it from the different perspective of, oh, these are the things that I have to do. If you flip the the perspective on that and think, oh, this is the way I can do this more effectively, you you just take the negative out of it. That can just make a huge difference in not only in the teacher's perspective at how they are approaching their job, but also how they're reaching out to that student. Because Mm -hmm. no matter how hard they try, we're human. We're human. 
we are fallible creatures. And yep. if you are frustrated and you resent having to do all these extra steps, it's going to shine through. You're right. It's gonna shine through. And that child is going to pick up on that negative undertone or sometimes the genuine need for blowing off steam to their to their um, partner to the co-teacher or to the paraprofessional and just make the off statements out of frustration and it's overheard by the student right and that student just you know it's kind of you know like a little dagger in their heart there right that their teacher is frustrated so flipping the perspective about ieps instead of looking at them as something negative and challenging and just one more thing to do it's looking at it from a perspective of this is my roadmap of how my job could be easier to be able to help the student if I just follow these steps. That is kind of can be a game changer. And like you said, I have friends, friends that are gen ed teachers that didn't have all the additional training mm-hmm. a special ed teacher receives sometimes. And there's just so much that is not explained to them or that they don't know about the process or how to dive into this a little deeper and and make it more effective for their classroom management. Yeah. And having the discussion with the full team about who's responsible for implementing this goal or for taking the data on it, or what you just said, how is this going to look is to me also a game changer because there were so many times when as a teacher, I would leave a meeting And I would think, okay, well, maybe this is a student that I don't see as much um, because they're included, you know, a a much bigger chunk of their day than with me. And so I was thinking that the special, I mean, the gen ed teacher would be making the accommodations and Mm -hmm. taking the data. And the the gen ed teacher would think, well, Shelly's the special ed teacher. That falls under her umbrella. Yep. And then it would become a tiff between us. Well, no, you have to do this. Well, no, you should be doing this, you know? And if we had discussed these things with the entire team, we could have had that objective look at it. And then whatever the team decides is what we would have both followed. Right. And so now that I'm able to go into meetings and ask those questions and get those clarifications for not just the education team, but also so the parent really understands like, oh, okay, well, if I have a question about the data, then I go to this person. If I have a question about an accommodation or a particular goal, maybe I go to somebody different and it's this person. Right. And so keeping that parent an equal member of the team too is, is so huge. And Going all the way back to the question that I had asked before we went on. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I've I've done this a couple of times where I get on a Catherine, um, you know, putting her up on a pedestal kick (laughs) because she does. Um, But so you as the parent then, you know, you did have those times. But in your experience, would you say you had more positive more negative or do you think you kind of had an even keel of as far as good and bad experiences i think it was probably even good. um the earlier years <laughs> even after that initial four-way foray into the world <laughs> or the welcome yeah. into the world of special education he's not yeah. messed up enough it's not messed up enough <sighs> but 
there were times when there were phenomenal school teams, uh, especially in the elementary years and the early middle school years where, you know, everybody was on the same page. I understood their perspective. They got my child. There were times when I had to push and, you know, fight for lack of a better phrase for certain things that I didn't understand why, like my poor kid could not write. You couldn't read his handwriting, mm -hmm. but they would not qualify him for school-based OT services because he didn't meet the criteria. Like he could put a pencil to paper, he could write his name, he could write just fine. It was just the fact that his penmanship was awful and it was illegible. And that was not what the school-based OT services were, were meant for. They were just meant right. for to help cover the bare minimum and what was academically relevant. So, you know, those kind of little, you know, moments like that were the ones where I would grow very frustrated and I still wouldn't understand why, like, you just need to be able to help my child. That's all I'm asking is why are you resisting helping my child? Yeah. But then when I would see the, you know, the data and when they would, you know, demonstrate different things that look, but he is capable of doing this. Yes. His, his, does it look great? No, but look, his teacher can read it function perfectly. They understand they get, Oh, okay, fine. So that's it. There was a meeting of the minds there, but even all the right. way through high school, when I was already a advocate professionally, there were times when his IEP accommodations were not offered during EOC exams and of, and of course exams or during an AP exam. Uh -huh. Yeah, those were good times. That that's when, <laughs> that's when the mama bear comes out and you know the hoop earrings come off and <laughs> right. And see, I'm gonna have to come in there and fight for my kid. So it, it was always a blend of both. You know, I, I did have some wonderful school um, teachers and teams that worked with my kids, but then there were times that did require, you know, to roll up your sleeves and, and get in there to dig in for what he needed. Yeah. And so can you give advice to, or maybe just tell what you did other than rolling up your sleeves and taking off the hoop earrings, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for those parents who are maybe listening and saying, well, I know that my child's accommodations weren't given for, you know, a, a state test or a, a, a classroom assessment even. Um, what, how, how would you advise them? What, what were some things that you did that worked? And, and we all know that just because it worked for you, or maybe it didn't work for you, <laughs> let them know the pitfalls yeah. and, and also the successes. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it may not work for them, but at least maybe it'll give them something else to try or another route to go. Well, the first thing is, depending on the age of the child, I think it's very important to have that conversation with your child about their educational needs, yeah. what their IEP is. You don't have to get into all the nuances and, and the details, and, you know, and parents will know their child best and what their level of understanding is. But once your child is old enough to understand and, and they do have a cognitive level of, of, that they can appreciate some of these things, advocating for themselves is huge. Mm -hmm. And yeah, asking it to speak up for yourself. So that was one thing that Will was always really good at. You know, he if he recognized that he was supposed to have extended time and they didn't offer it to him, he would raise his hand and he would ask for it. That's awesome. Um, so that was huge. Not every child does that. But when I would get the, the feedback same day or a couple of days later, then I would email the team. And that is something that I always recommend to parents that when you have a doubt about something that 
has been denied your child, has been offered your child, has anything that you have a question about their educational plan and whether or not these services and supports have been offered to your child, put it in writing and email the teacher mm -hmm. and CC on it all the pertinent parties mm -hmm. that have something to do with what's going on there. If it is a service provider, if it's the gen ed teacher and the ESE teacher, if it is the speech language pathologist that needs to be CC'd. And in the case of when an accommodation was not offered for a high stakes test like that, you better believe that I also CC'd the principal mm -hmm. on that email as well. And that was handled within 12 hours. You know, my son actually, they, they ended up letting him finish his exam the following day. Oh, wonderful. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, that was huge. And because I put the right statements together and, and said, you know, let them know, like, you know, this is something that is outlined in my child's educational plan. This is a pro, uh, an accommodation that he is to be provided. He has been provided this accommodation all year long. And now during the time of high stakes testing, you know, I need you to demonstrate to me that you did give him this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't, why? I want to know the why, show me the policy, show me, you know, how you're going to help fix this situation. You know, I'm willing to work with you guys, but how are you going to propose to fix this? That's, yeah. that's huge is, you know, I'm willing to work with you, but we need to make this right. Absolutely. And I want to say something and I should have said it wait. And I, it was on my mind to say it. And then I got sidetracked and said something else, but, but what you talked about when you went to your very first meeting is you're sitting, you know, at this table and there's all these experts, you know, you have the therapist, you have the administration, you have teachers. And something that I've been trying to get teachers to understand and parents to own is that you are the expert in your child. Exactly. They, you said it, these other people at the table have gone to school for years and they might have years of experience in education mm -hmm. or therapy, whatever their role is at the table, but you have had your child every day from the moment they were born. And you know those little nuances about them as far as something's, something's off and why, you know, this is not their norm. So what's going on? Um, exactly. And you've learned those, you know, this is how he learns best, or this is how she studies best. And to be able to bring that information to the table is just as valid and as important as whatever the educators have to say. Um, and yeah, you're right. A lot of what I find that I do for families is give them the, the, the language to speak that the educators understand. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me to, because you help a lot of Spanish speaking families, mm -hmm. um, tell, tell us about that. Like, tell us, are they over identified, under identified? Um, we'll start with that one. <laughs> so that's a mixed bag. Okay. There, when earlier on in my career, I felt that they were, and earlier on, even when my child was, you know, um, diagnosed as autistic, I think that in the Hispanic and in the Latin community, largely they were under identified. And I think that that may have been in part due to just culture uh -huh. and the fact that it's a very difficult thing to look at your child and think there's something quote unquote 
wrong with them, even though there is absolutely nothing wrong with a child that has a learning disability. They just, right. they're, they're viewing the world. And, and, you know, with Will, I always used to tell him, he's just viewing the world in a different way. His, his brain just operates slightly differently. Mm-hmm. That's just something that is, can sometimes in um, minority communities be difficult to accept. And I don't know if it's that, you know, they view themselves as needing to just push harder and, and work harder for what they're achieving. And then there's the language barriers right. that sometimes they're intimidated by the process. And th- I think that they've largely gone used to have gone. I'm, that's, I'm not speaking very good English today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would um, tell you to say it in yeah. Spanish, but then I wouldn't have a clue what you were saying. <laughs> but I think that they, that it, time was that they largely went unidentified yeah. And that I've, I've seen a positive trend where they are being identified more often. And ch- these children are going and being evaluated. And I've had a lot of families that are actually transplants, for example, that moved from Puerto Rico. And when they came over to Florida, they brought their IEPs from Puerto Rico with them. And they were just kind of lost with the little bit of the language barrier. And they needed that help understanding. Um, understanding the nuances of how, despite the fact that they're still, you know, part of a, a U.S. territory and, and right. that IEPs are international, it doesn't matter what country a student is coming from, even if they're German, right. if they've got an education plan, they've got their specific rights. It's helping the parent understand that process. Um, something that was huge for my um, bilingual families is for them to understand that they're entitled to receive certain copies of their documents in their native language, mm-hmm. like their procedural safeguards. They're entitled to receive a copy of that in Spanish so that they can actually take the time to read it and help them understand that better. Right. And that was just something that was a lightning bolt moment for me of, okay, these families are not getting it and they need help. They need to understand that these are resources that are available to their child out there and to them as the parent, and I need to help them access this. Right. And I know that things are a little bit easier. I I almost said a lot easier, but I think it's only a little bit easier with, you know, programs like Google Translate um, for those documents to be put into all the different languages. Um, because it is supposed to be in a, in a family's native language. But um, I can remember when I first started teaching and I had, I think it was a Spanish-speaking family. And at that time, it wasn't in the law yet that mm-hmm. they had to, you know, that they had the right to receive like their procedural rights and safeguards in Spanish. And I thought, but how are they going to understand you know, yeah, we had an interpreter at the meeting, but then they went home right. and they were, they had all these, you know, I mean, I don't know how thick it is, but I mean, our, I remember ours here in Illinois was 10 or 12 pages and it was teeny oh, yeah. tiny little print and front and back. And I mean, it's very overwhelming. And I mean, that would be like, if you gave it to me in Spanish, I, you'd be lost. Right. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't take the time to translate it or find somebody to translate it for me, I would just go, oh, well, okay. I guess they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Right. And that was just so important for the families to feel that support 
and for the families to feel that they finally had somebody on their side, because I've, I've got one of my clients and actually I've worked with her several times throughout the school year. Once she brought, started bringing an advocate with her to the meetings, suddenly they set, would send a district translator to participate in the meetings. Whereas before she only had somebody that was a staff member translating back and forth, kind of like what I used to do when mm-hmm. I worked for the schools mm-hmm. and she knew enough of the language and she knew and understood enough of English that she said, I know that she's not translating every single thing that they're saying to me. And I know that I'm missing out on some of these things and that she's not explaining things the way that I'm state I'm stating them. She's not, oh, wow. um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, translating my statements verbatim. So that was one of the things that I requested and I brought that to the table. And so they have been providing someone that literally that, it, it takes a really long time during the meeting, but because this was a very specific concern of the parents, this person literally translates every aspect of the meeting. So, you know, somebody will speak and somebody will give a response and then we have to pause. And that person is almost like a court reporter. Mm-hmm. They are reading the the literal translation of everything that's taking place right. in that meeting. And it doesn't always have to be that way, but that is something that the parents need to know that that is a resource that is available to them. Yeah. And that they're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. I've had a couple of meetings where, um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that it was really legal the way that they brought an interpreter mm-hmm. in. Um, I mean, I've had siblings of the child, an older sibling come in and, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the schools where I've worked in have been K eight buildings. Yes. And so, I can remember a student was a seventh or eighth grader and had a third or fourth grade sibling. And we brought the seventh or eighth grader in to be the translator for his parents. And I thought, okay, I don't really think (laughs) this is the right way to do this. But at the time, you know, like I said, it, it wasn't, it was said that it had to be interpreted. It wasn't, you know, it didn't give a specific, like it has to be someone Right. is an interpreter right because that's that's different as well you mm-hmm. know because if you're i would think at least if you're very familiar with one one group or the other group mm-hmm. you might throw some slang in or throw some you know like a word that you think oh they're going to know what i'm talking about but it doesn't maybe right absolutely translate that way um yep. whereas a a interpreter that's hired that's you know an an objective party I wouldn't think would do that but I don't know maybe they maybe they would but and they they it was really interesting because in all my years of doing this this is the first time that I've had one that took her job that seriously (laughs) and it was verbatim translating everything and I gave her mad credit because mad props because that that was quite a job but you know when there is enough confidence on both sides of the table. If you have someone that is, for example, the Spanish teacher or the SLP or you know the speech pathologist or someone else that is a staff member that, that is fluent in the language and can speak to the parent and translate both sides and the parent feels confident, I think it's important to ask the parent what's their comfort level with that as yeah. well. And if the parent is not comfortable with that and wants to make sure that something's not being missed, then bring your own friend or neighbor or, you know, right. Or an advocate or someone with you to make sure that 
you know, you're understanding everything and that both sides are hearing the other side's perspective. Yes. And I would think that's even more critical when there's a language difference. I mean, it's already difficult when both parties are speaking English, but like I said, educators have, you know, it's just like every field has their own acronyms and their own, you know, shortcuts of, of saying things. And I found that even going in di into different districts um, or like, I forget now what it was that you, you said before. And I was like, oh yeah, that's like an East coast way to say what I would say is this here oh, in the, the Midwest. F uh, FBA? The no, FBA. it might. Did you say like the EC teacher? Maybe do e you have ESE e e teacher? Okay. So e yeah. yeah. And it's exceptional student education. That's how we call it here in Florida. It's the ESE teacher, right? Or, which is a special ed teacher basically. Right. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, we we're just special ed teachers in the Midwest and, you know, like the different being able to work in the different States, like we're able to, um, you know, even that it's like, okay, uh, I need you to stop because I don't know what you're saying. And I'm sure if I don't know what you're saying, the parent doesn't know what you're saying. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, because it's difficult enough with just both people speaking English, I would think it's even more critical that both sides, or I hate to say sides, but everybody at the table understands <laughs> exactly. what is being said, because you exactly. do want to to have that trust and that collaboration that everything is the way it's supposed to be. And, um, you know, and, and probably in your situation, when you were telling the parents a little bit more that like, you know, kind of their, their, right. some of their rights and, and how the procedures would go, right. you know, maybe the school didn't want you doing that. And, and that's, yeah, they, the principal, she knew enough Spanish to get that I was kind of oversharing. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, and that's when, you know, she genuinely made the comment to me. She said, you've missed your calling because these are the families that need you. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Of course, I don't know that she was expecting me to hand in my resignation <laughs> the following year, but <laughs> I liked what you said. And so I'm going to take you up on it and I'm gone. <laughs> yeah. like, Wait, no, don't go. Yeah. That's not what but, I meant. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, um, and it's, and honestly, it's not a matter of the school team wanting to hide things or not, or wanting right. to no, not yeah. be as forthcoming with the parent. Sometimes it's a matter of that. They just, again, cut and dry and let's cut to the chase and let's just knock this out and get out of here. But if the parent is not understanding every aspect of what's being explained at the table, it doesn't matter what language it's being presented in. The parent right. needs to be given, you know, meaningful input. Uh -huh. That's the way it states it in the law. They need to have meaningful input into the IEP process. And, you know, I said, that's the way it states in the law. I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> right, <same here. laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I'm just married to one, but that's not me, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. But, that's, you know, the, there's so many nuances to it that the parents need to understand what their rights are. And well, that's what we love helping them with. Yeah. And like I have, um, you know, we're talking about one law, one special education law. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is the rights law version of the book, but look how thick that is. I've got, I've got some of mine up here too for rights right. law. You know, yes. I mean, so yeah. there's, there's no possible way that oh, yeah. parents who don't have you know, years of experience at this are going to be able to understand all the nuances within the law. Right. And, and, go ahead. and, it's, and they don't necessarily have to 
understand right. every aspect of it either. You know, I, I, I always caution parents like, don't, don't be intimidated by it. It's okay. Right. You don't have to understand each and every aspect of it. Number one, that's why you've called me or number two, there's resources out there. You can learn a lot of these things. You know, sometimes it does take having an advocate or, or an IEP coach on your side to help. And it just kind of smooths the path and, and makes things a little bit easier. But parents, it's, it's so important to just arm yourselves with knowledge right. and learn as much as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. So, so we've got about 10 or 12 minutes. So, so tell us some of the things, some of those limits that may have been placed on your son that he has busted through and then tell us what he's up to these days. So will over the years, like about a year after we got his IEP, um, there was a whole rezoning going on in our district and they were trying to um, place him at a different school. And I was, you know, kind of fighting to keep him where he was. And I received a phone call from the special ed teacher at the new school they were recommending saying, oh yeah, I heard that, you know, you guys are, are I'm here to answer any questions and yeah, we've got this great, we've got a, a place for him in the autism unit and it's just going to be great. And I was like, well, wait, what do you mean? And they were, I found out inadvertently that they were going to propose to put him in a self-contained classroom setting. Oh, and I said, well, no, that's not where my son belongs. He's in the general education setting. He does receive. And, and that's, you know, just there's different ways that special education services can be offered to children. Right. The way that my son received it was he received pull out service, meaning that the two subjects that he struggled in the most, which were math and um, organizational skills and, and things, they would pull him out and work with him one on one. But he was in the general education setting for the rest of the day. And uh -huh. he demonstrated that he struggled the poor guy had, had a hard time, but he demonstrated that he was perfectly capable of that. And he went through his whole school career in the general education setting with a lot of supports and services in place. He graduated with a regular general education diploma. Um, he's been plugging along slowly, but surely at his associate's degree at, at the college. And it's been, a, a few years still because he really needed that setting of, of the, the support and mm -hmm. that environment of the set schedule mm -hmm. of the school year and, and having the teachers kind of reaching out to him and touching base with him when things were assignments were missing and stuff. You don't get that as well in college right. as you used to. And, and so he's had to learn to advocate for his accommodations um, for himself in the college setting where when your child graduates from high school, the IEP essentially goes away because they're not providing your child a service, but they can still provide accommodations. Mm -hmm. So like the extra time and things. So he's had to learn how to go to the disability services office and ask and provide them the paperwork. And I do help him with these things, but we've tried to foster that independence in right. him. Yeah. Um, he's got a part-time job at a dog daycare that he absolutely loves. And he's been there for, for over a year. And we're still, you know, plugging away at those independent living skills and things that he just needs a little more help with. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've come to realize over the years is that the um, young autistics, as they age out of high school and as they age out of that day-to-day -day support in the school setting, the transition to adulthood is very challenging and there are fewer supports and, and 
adequate services for them out there, depending on the level of need. When you have a, a level one autistic like my son, or that used to be called Asperger's or used to be, or considered high functioning, they kind of fall through the cracks. Okay. Because they're not that, um, their level of need is that is not that significant where they qualify for all the different social services that may be available out there for them. There and there's also that desire to be independent that he has. Right. So he, he resists the help sometimes. And it's a matter of just giving him his, his space to be his own person and being there to support your child when you can and, and in the way that they need at the moment when they need it. Yeah. And I'm I'm learning more about the transition out of high school. When I taught, as I said, I was mostly in buildings that were the highest level was eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know anything about transition until I became an IEP consultant and then had to learn a little bit about it. And I am definitely seeing that, that we have to be very cognizant of teaching independence as much as an individual student can be independent for exactly what you said. You know, we don't want to send the child and say, okay, now you've reached your 22nd or I know, I don't know what it is in, in um, Florida, but here in Illinois, it's the day before their 22nd birthday. There's legislation right now that they'll be able to stay until the end of that school year. Um, that would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever is their last, you know, that we're not saying, okay, bye. And they've had exactly. all this, this support for however many years, and then it's just nothing. Yeah. Um, and like you said, I mean, I would think that's, that's where the challenge was, is mm -hmm. now what? And the a, a perfect example of the, you know, you don't know what it is you don't know, even as an advocate, I, I did not know as much about transition planning and about transition mm -hmm. needs. And I came to learn the hard way with my own child when they presented to me at one of the IEP meetings. They said, oh, and for the next meeting, do you need us to invite somebody from voc rehab? And it wasn't really explained to me what vocational rehab was. Mm -hmm. And I understood it to be tech school, like just putting them in a technical sure. college. And so I said, no, that's okay. Thanks. We don't need them to come because my child has aspirations to go to college and I want him to be able to, to try his hand at that turned out that vocational rehab offered so many other additional services and supports and that I did end up ultimately finding these things out and got them involved um, and had to take him on my own. And there were just so many different services that they helped him with, and including um, support at the college and support with college. Um, support with my, my son doesn't drive. So he would take the bus. I, I taught him to, to take the public transportation when I can't take him to, to school and they provided him bus passes and they, you know, there's all those little nuances right. of different supports that are out there that unless you know, to ask for them, it's not always so for, it's not always so easily found out right. there. You have to dig a little bit and it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that hard, but it is yeah. sometimes. I agree with you that I feel like we need to do a better job. And I think in a lot of times that the education people feel that they're condescending if they try to explain things because they don't want to make the parents feel that they don't 
no, but at the same time, you know, we have to, to figure out a, a better approach as to, you know, like you said, the first time, I'm sorry, that's okay. The the first time I heard vocational rehabilitation, I was the same way, you know, I'm like, oh, that's like a tech school. You know, it's like, he's going to go into a vocation rather than a college. So I would have, I would have done the same thing that you did, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's one of those terms that because I'm in my head and I know what I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily translate the same in your head, you know? So how do we figure out that I'm not being condescending? I just want to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. Exactly. And in that case in particular, the, the, his ESE case manager, his, his um, special ed case manager, the poor guy, he himself just didn't know. And that's what he does every day. And right. he didn't know how to explain it properly. And he didn't even understand all the different supports that were out there through the vocational rehab rehabilitation program and all the different services that they offered. And so once I found those things out on my own, I went back and I let him know like, hey, by the way, just so that you know, this is what I was able to get for Will and this is what he's going to be doing and they're supporting him. They've determined that he's capable of um, going through college and that the career field that he'd like to go into that would require a college degree, they're going to support him through that and try and help him, you know, encourage him. He had no idea. So it was a matter of sharing that information and not, I didn't assume that they didn't share this information with me out of malice or neglect or anything like that. They just genuinely just did not know himself. Right. Yeah. And that goes back to that book. I mean, it's just, you know, and your books on yourself, it's just, it's, I would almost think, I mean, unless all you did was focus on the, the, all the definitions that, cause that's what some of this book is too, is just defining all of those things. Um, you know, it, it's impossible for one person to know all of that stuff. And I hope that, and it sounds like he was open to receive, Hey, mm-hmm. this is what this means. You know, and this is what I found. Um, because I know sometimes that can be a barrier as well is that as an educator, we get like, oh, I'm supposed to know all this stuff and I can't act like I don't know this. And, you know, I'm not going to receive anything else because that it looks like, you know, I'm negligent or, or whatever. Right. Right. So we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. So I want to make sure that if anybody wants to be able to get a hold of you, how, let them know how they would do that. Um, It's just, um, I have a, I'm on Facebook, I'm on social media, on Instagram and my website, um, sandysantero.com or Sandy Santero, S-A-N-T-E-I-R-O at gmail.com. And I'm definitely available to, to help families. I've primarily helped families in the state of Florida, just so happens that way, because that's where I am in Florida. But I do have some families that I work with in Georgia, North Carolina, California. I've, you know, I help families from all over. That's awesome. I'm glad I didn't try to say your last name because I would not have said it properly. So I'm glad I just said this is Sandy. Yeah, that's fine. And and I never get upset if someone pronounces my name in a different way. That doesn't bother me at all. Well, again, I'm so excited for our conference in a few months that that we get to meet in person. I'm super thrilled and thank you. So grateful that you were with me today and willing to share your story. I hope that you got to tell the story that you wanted to tell. And um, we will see you all next time. Bye. Thank you.